Professional wrestling is the one true sport. Other sports have their share of intense dramatic moments, but nothing can compare with professional wrestling. Welcome to Wrestling History X, where three friends come together to talk about the stories behind the matches. I'm Matt. I'm Mikira Hokuto. My name is Mud. <laughs> Welcome to episode 248, Spring Stampede 1997. These men do solemnly swear to kick, fight, punch, stomp, and flatten. Anybody who gets in their way. Nicely done. Whew. Long tagline. I mean, yeah, I mean, we went from heat. heat. Yeah. Heat. Um, I mean, this is a, a little bit better, but no one's getting married on this show. No. So this is the second <laughs> Spring Stampede produced by WCW, with the last being in 1994. A little bit of break. It would take place on April 6th, 1997, from the Tupelo Coliseum in Tupelo, Mississippi, with an attendance of 8,356. Uh-oh. Their numbers are dwindling. I mean, they don't go to Mississippi super often. It's not the point. I know, but... They don't go there super often. That means they should have a lot of people that are like, I gotta go see. I mean, yeah, whenever I think of Mississippi, I don't think of it as a wrestling state, though, but hey, I'm sure it was at some point. I also don't, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I've never been. Yeah. I don't know that they ever had the hottest, they were on the hottest territory run by any means. The days of the territory are over. Well, yes, of course. But, you know, that's uh, where WCW bread was buttered for the longest time. True. And uh, who knows where it's buttered now. But Shane, we are in Mississippi. Yeah, we are. So did you do what you do? I attempted to do what I do, and whether I did what I do is all up to you. And yes, we are in Mississippi. I believe we've been here a couple times. We don't come here very often, as Michael mentioned. It's not quite a, a super heavy wrestling area, at least in 1997, or the mid-90s in general, but here we are. So yes, I did what I do where I get on and I look to see what the hell do they have in Mississippi? What's what's their sandwich? What's their signature drink? What's their favorite dessert? And stumbled upon, well, I've always heard of a Mississippi mud pie, but I've never actually experienced a Mississippi mud pie. And I don't know if this is officially a Mississippi mud pie or not, because there's quite a different varieties of them when I looked up the recipes. I always thought they had, like, marshmallow on top of them. Uh, maybe some of them do. Maybe a meringue? Possibly. But the majority of the recipes that I found, because we're in Oklahoma and it's not very easy to find a Mississippi mud pie here in Oklahoma. I never even heard of one. The recipes that I found all called for either a... Graham cracker crust that's mixed with pecans, an Oreo crust. They have some that have a brownie layer to it or a chocolatey, cakey type layer to it. Some that don't. Some that have cream cheese mixed with Cool Whip and then mixed with chocolate pudding and then have more Cool Whip on top of it. 
but essentially you want something that resembles a murky river you know like if you were looking at the bottom of a river i guess where it looks all muddy and gross and multiple colors and layers and textures and whatnot so i came up with i'm calling a five minute mississippi mud pie and i kind of used the uh the walmart roulette method of shopping where i didn't know what i was going to buy until i got there because i've learned that if i make a list and go to walmart that they're going to have maybe two-thirds of the items on there so i went with no list and just kind of walked around to see what i could find and i walked to their bakery aisle and uh or their baking aisle and got one of those uh, pre-made crusts that was a pecan crust that it had a picture of a key lime pie on it. So I figured, <laughs> all right, bonus. Plus, they didn't have an Oreo crust, so it made it that much easier to make my decision. I then went to their bakery section and got some of their little brownie bites that they had. And I took those and smashed them up and made a base layer in the bottom of this pie crust of brownie. And then I bought some snack packs. A variety pack that had some milk chocolate and chocolate fudge with milk chocolate swirl. Oh wow, you really went for it. And I put like four or five cups of those in there. And then I topped it with some Cool Whip and some chocolate sprinkles. And then just popped it back in the fridge and let it cool. It only cooled for like an hour and a half. It says to let it cool for a few hours. So the more it cools, the more firm the, uh, the pudding will be, I'm guessing. But I mean for a five minute little dessert thingy that you just it's almost like a tiktok thing i guess you could say where you just take ingredients that are already there and layer them and make something out of it without actually cooking oh yeah this is uh but it's ain't bad it's got all the elements there it's got that rich chocolate from the brownie it has the nuttiness from the pecan crust it has that cool whip coolness to it I'd say if I was going to change anything, I'd subtract the chocolate sprinkles and actually get like a chocolate bar and just like uh, shave yeah. some on top of it. But I figured this is easy. Easier. But yeah, Mississippi mud pie. If you've never had one, now you know an easy way to make one. Or if you're closer to Mississippi, you're probably laughing at me right now because what the fuck is that that you just made, Shane? That's not a Mississippi mud pie. That's just... I think a Mississippi, from what you've said, a Mississippi mud pie is just... Everything a, but the kitchen sink. An uh, extra dirty chocolate cream pie. Pretty much. It's like, oh, we added cake and maybe some cream cheese. No one's mad at that. Uh-uh. It is uh, rich as hell. I will say, I've never seen a <coughs> pecan pre-made pie crust. Like the, like the you know, like the graham cracker style, style ones at yeah. all. That's bizarre. I hadn't either, but I'd never actually looked for one either. So I haven't either, I, yeah. I don't know. It just jumped out at me. It was like, oh, cool. Yeah. They mentioned pecan, so... Bonus, we're going for it because that'll That's go good with the brownies. That's what that brownies. flavor was. Yeah, because yeah. if you try a little bit of it without anything on it, it's like, oh yeah, it's definitely got. Because I was eating it, and I was just like, this crust tastes weird. Not that it was bad weird, just like, it wasn't. It was. Yeah. It just wasn't graham cracker. It wasn't graham cracker, and I was like, <laughs> something's off. But it was still good. Mm-hmm. It was, I, I enjoyed every bite. Yeah, I'm not mad at this at all. The brownies that I got were, or the brownie bites. They're like ultimate brownie bites, so they had chocolate chips and everything in them, so I figured that'll just add even more. Heck yeah. I'm overdosing on sugar. Sugar coma. Hey, new year, new you, right? We say Resolutions can start after this bite. (laughs) (laughs) 
So something that would happen right around the same time as Spring Stampede, Third Eye Blind's self-titled debut would release the same week. Uh, that's the, the one. They don't have one that's like before the one with Semi-Charmed Life, right? No, it's no. Semi-Charmed Life. Jumper. Jumper, Graduate. How's it going to be? That's what it was. Wow, what's, like, what's, what what's, that? what's Graduate? Oh, you would know it if you heard it. I mean, I know the other ones. Yeah, I'm like trying to think of it. And you say graduate, and my mind automatically goes to like graduate. Because like songs, literally, that's not it. You goes to vitamin C the... or the movie The Graduate, so it goes to like Sound of Silence. <laughs> like three through six of this album, like goes off. Just is tremendous. <laughs> Has this cool little hook. I recognize the song. I, just, I recognize the guitar more than the much. vocal melody, which is weird. Yeah. There we go. Now I know it. This song's definitely like harder and more um, like underground sounding for the time than the other songs, for sure. Well, they had to get that mainstream sound just so people would listen to them and then find those hidden tracks. I mean, if you read the lyrics to Semi-Charm Kind of Life, they are pretty brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's talking about he's talking about Christmas. ejaculating on people and uh, smoking meth and stuff. It's yeah. uh, pretty wild. And they're like, they don't, I don't know if they really... They may have edited like one word, but it wasn't the sex act. But I do remember hearing that song for the first time, not knowing what it was about for a very, very long time. But I have a visceral memory. Doing, yeah, they, they're doing crystal meth. Rocks. Yeah. The, but the, I, yeah. the spot about crystal meth is usually where they did that reverse yeah, yeah. play on it. Because, <laughs> uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. Even though you knew what the words were, because it still sounded like they were saying crystal meth. But yeah, I remember the, seeing the music video and first time hearing the song in the year 97 on MTV at my cousin's house who's a couple years older than me before we went to the local like water big water park with water slides and stuff and we were seeing that song here and be like oh damn i never had one of their albums but i know at least the five or six major third eye blind songs and uh i saw them live years ago they play here every like eight months i should go sometime i went to see them in tulsa like 2009 maybe they're one of the and kings of the zoo amphitheater. They played with it was Sister Hazel. No, it was Everclear. Oh, what the hell were they called? That'd be an okay show. I think I like Everclear more than Sister Hazel. No, but you know, my brain is. I'm not mad at either of them. Better than Ezra. It's around that same. Gin blossoms. Genre. They've never played with gin blossoms because uh, I would definitely yeah. go to that show. Uh, Dishwalla. Stop saying stuff. I've never seen, <laughs> I've never seen Dishwalla come through here. Me either. I don't know if they probably haven't been abandoned. I know forever. they toured with Jimmy World in mm, like 2019. I see. Yeah. But they didn't come through here. Because I would have gone and seen that show too. Yeah. Dishwalla, everyone, just, there's just one song. Collective Soul. There Collective we go. Soul. Oh, yeah, they definitely do tour with Collective yeah. Soul. Collective Soul was the opening act, and I knew some Collective Soul songs, but Collective Soul blew me away because they were better than I expected them to be. I was going to say, is Collective and Soul the one that does Runaway Train, but that's um, Soul Asylum. Yes. Yeah. Collective Soul has, like, December. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. They're kind of more between... Turn your hair, now, babe, and just spit me yeah. out. Shine. They're, yeah. They're kind um, of between live and like gin blossoms or dishwalla they're like the in between where it's like 
not as yeah. heavy as like live, but live's not like a metal band or anything. Uh, they compared to what I remember hearing of them on the radio, hearing them live, they were so much better, and they were like the standout of the the show. Oh, that's nice. And then Third Eye Black came on, and they were amazing. They did a uh, a cover of Stairway to Heaven as their weird. final song. Weird. It was weird, but. He, I mean, he nailed it. It's one of those things, too, where it's like, well, if you can't pull it off, don't do it. And they're a big yeah. enough band where somebody would have told him, like, hey, don't do this. You're not pulling it no, off. He, he did it just right. Yeah, that's and cool. then Counting Crows was the headliner. And I was so disappointed. And I will never attempt to go see Counting Crows again. I mean, yeah. Because they played nothing that anybody knew. Really? They decided that we're shooting some for VH1 here soon, so we're only going to play our new stuff. And yeah. nobody went to go see Collective Soul, Third Eye Blind, and Counting Crows to hear their new shit. They wanted to hear the shit that we've been listening to for yeah. the last 20 years. I guess Third Eye Blind just did a unplugged album. Huh. That'd All their good. stuff acoustically. That'd be good. That'd be, be interesting Because, I mean, Jumper to this day, when I think of that song, I oh, picture song. Jim Carrey sitting on a ledge singing to, what's his name, in... Uh, Jumper is not is one yes of the Man? ones they did in acoustic. No? Well, bummer. That's weird because it kind of lends itself. <laughs> yeah, I hear Jim Carrey every time I think Wait, of the song Jumper. Sing that? It was not Liar Liar. Yes, liar, man. Liar. Okay, I didn't see that one. I think that um, makes sense time wise because like Liar Liar is like the same year as this album, so they wouldn't do that. No, no. But yeah, Third Eye Blind. This album definitely uh, a fan. Made it to number four on the charts. Pretty wild. A, a regular on TRL. For our first first record, that's insane. Simitarm Light and Jumper made it to number four and number five, respectively. Yeah, big no, pop I'm radio. Sorry. I apologize. Crossover. The album didn't only made 25th. Yeah, but this, really? is, this is also the, the time period where people were buying albums, so it meant something. As it opposed was, to everybody checking out the Drake album on Spotify. It is six times platinum, though. So yeah, even with insane. it only being... Tw- I mean, this is one of those albums that like most people... You, you turn semi charm life on. Like, everybody knows it. Everybody freaking can sing that song with you. In like, 97 was It might club some of the words, of a, but they'll get the chorus. A year for women, if I remember right. Because I want to say, like, Sean Colvin, or she may have already been gone by then. No. God rest her soul. <laughs> no, no. no but you're, 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 you're saying, like, 97 is, like, oh, kind of the beginning of, like, the Lilith Fair. Not necessarily Lilith Fair. There was just a lot of women that had big albums that year. Because, I mean, Alanis had won the Grammy a couple yeah. years before, and jo- she kind of yeah. ignited that path where a lot of them... Joan Osborne. Yeah. Um, what's Joan, the... Joan Osborne, uh, Sean Colvin, is it Na- Jewel. I mean, Natalie Merchant already had... Uh, yeah, 10,000 10, Maniacs were still oh, around. Who's the girl that has that really crummy song Actually, I'm a bitch I'm a lover she had just, left the, ba- she had just left the band did she okay so yeah, she may have gone Sheryl Crow was big popping off yeah first Sheryl Crow album has a bunch of good songs on it yeah, every Sheryl Crow album has good songs on it I, mean, I don't know well, if I agree completely with that but hey <laughs> there's an album that has Kid Rock on it <laughs> I mean you I don't know. consider that one a Sheryl Crow album. <laughs> hey man every Sheryl Crow album that I have has good songs on it <laughs> yeah and I stopped at the Globe Sessions or wait no I think I had come on, come on. That yeah. was the next one. But maybe one of these days I'll actually listen to a full The Right Blind album. They're one of those bands where I'm waiting for the tour that's like three three nineties things that are like musical. nineties like unoffensive like radio rock bands that I like playing together and then going to it. Like 
like we like basically any of the things it's about time we need semi-charmed life the musical yeah like i said i'm saying they've got jagged little pill we've got i heard the jagged little pill starting our patreon (laughs) for five dollars that'll get us started on our semi-charmed life Musical? Musical? Yeah. I'm leaving that one in your guys' hands. <laughs> I haven't seen enough musicals. I mean, I've got a couple of connections in Tulsa that have won some Tonys, so. Yeah. <laughs> hey. I know people. friends just were battle win Red Barons. <laughs> <laughs> like the frozen pizza? No, I like Corbin's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like pizzas. <laughs> Tonys. Red Barons. Okay, I get it. I get it. Let's talk some spring stamp. We gotta go. Oh, if we shall, we shall. We get highlights of competitors with narration listing the matches for the show, using Western references for each encounter, such as clear the streets, there's gonna be a showdown, new sheriff in town, someone will get branded, do you feel the rumbling? Tonight there's gonna be a jailbreak (laughs) somewhere in this town. And Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show, joined by Dusty Rhodes and Bobby the Brain Heenan. And Pyro goes off, looking like gunfire and ricochets on an Old West-themed set. It's great. The camera pans across it, and it looks like it's getting shot up, and there's, like, pinwheels behind, like, the set. So, like, they're set off in a chain as it pans, and it's just a really a As much as we behold. give WCW crap... Mm-hmm. Some of their set design. It's been fun. It's pretty fun. Yeah. They've definitely, it's kind of, I mean, much like the shows, much like any wrestling company with regular pay per views, goes up and down. Yeah. And uh, the WWF always has kind of a baseline of production. WCW's been trying stuff out since, shit, 89. (laughs) And um, they still are, so kudos to them. Our commentators talk about the matches, and specifically the tag title match, as Kevin Nash claims he would take on WCW by himself since Scott Hall wasn't there, because hmm. he was in rehab. a boy. First of many. It's not where they, they never said he was in rehab, but that's where he was. Yeah, yeah. The championship committee then tells Nash that he cannot substitute, but Kevin has some demands. And we're told that Lee Marshall will attempt to get more info throughout the night. And Dusty believes there might just be some cracks in the old NWO's armor. I mean, Lord willing. Word. So we go to our first match. (laughs) Ultimo Dragon versus Rey Mysterio. This is where our bread is buttered. And Mike Denae joins the commentators for this one as they wonder where Sonny Ono is. He's got a big match with another one of his peeps. Yeah, another uh, stable mate or another... I guess he's the representative of them, but you know. I'm trying to remember, just because it stood out to me on this one, and I think they made a comment about it. Did they usually refer to him as the ultimate dragon? Yes. Okay. It's like... They, in they, America, they, they call They specifically him said it on that one, but I had swore that it had said Ultimo on a different... WCW show, so I couldn't remember. Tanae always, they... always corrects them whenever they, someone says Ultimate. <laughs> also, the Chiron says Ultimate. I recognized it on the show and the last one, and they got the title wrong in a voiceover on the last pay-per-view, so... 
Can we really expect him to say Ultimo instead of Ultimate? Yeah. It means the same thing. So the two start off with Matt wrestling submissions until Dragon hits a combo of kicks, followed by a drop kick and returning to the arm with a cross arm breaker into a short arm scissors. Ultimo continues with a spinning rack attack and a powerbomb, followed by a rubber band slam and a sleeper hold, which Ray escapes momentarily, only to get caught with a back elbow, a running glider bomb, My and God. a tombstone pile driver. Holy crap. Making the cover. But Dragon pulls Mysterio up at two. I mean, he just creamed the little guy. Sonny Ono was probably in the back yelling and screaming at the monitor like, What are you doing? Ultimately cocky of you, dude. Just pin the little... I mean, he really just laid it down on him. Dragon locks on the sleeper again, which Mysterio elbows his way free and ducking a clothesline and coming off the ropes with a spinning heel kick, only for Ultimo to respond with a clothesline. Dragon with kicks, a front suplex, and a Muda lock before transitioning into a surfboard, getting Ray's shoulders down for a near fall. Now Mysterio rolls out to regroup, only for Ultimo to follow out, but he gets whipped into the guardrail. And back in the ring, Ray gets caught with another sleeper, escaping by shoving Dragon off to the ropes and locking on a sleeper of his own. Ultimo goes for a back suplex to escape, which Mysterio flips out and nails a drop kick and a spinning heel kick that sends Dragon out to the floor. Ray fakes a tope suicida as Ultimo walks away, only to then surprise him with a tope conhio on the other side of the ring. I mean, you know. Fun stuff. Tony sends us to Lee Marshall in the back on split screen, where he walks up to Kevin Nash's locker room, knocking on the door only for Six to answer, whispering something and then slamming the door in Lee's face. Now back to the action, Mysterio has hit a springboard somersault senton, a drop kick, and a springboard leg drop for a two count. Ray's whip is reversed, but he leaps up and flips over the charging dragon, who leaps up and tries for a crossbody, only for Mysterio to avoid and head up top when Ultimo drop kicks Ray out to the floor. You guys started to, started to come back. Had to eat the mat. Yep. Dragon flies through the ropes with a drop kick, followed by a pescado, before attempting to bring Ray in the hard way, only for Mysterio to float over and go for a cobrada. But Ultimo drop kicks him in midair. I mean, would it be a Lucha or Junior match without the drop kick out of the sky? Dragon with a giant swing that gets seven rotations, dropping both men, followed by both going for spinning heel kicks. And the spin, like, is that something we've seen from Ultimo Dragon before? I think maybe one time before. Yeah, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, this doesn't feel like it's part of his typical move set, and uh, it stood out. They both run the ropes with Ray handspringing into a Rana for an earfall, followed by Ultimo rolling it over for a two count as well. Mysterio then telegraphs a back body drop, allowing Ultimo to nail an Insiguri for a earfall, before delivering a corner clothesline setting Ray on the turnbuckle to hit a super Frankensteiner for the pin. And no, Mysterio gets his boot on the ropes. Those little legs got reach when they ate him. Better move. 
Dragon goes for a powerbomb, only for Ray to flip out and go for a clothesline. But Ultimo ducks and grabs Mysterio for a tiger suplex, which Ray wisely gets into the ropes to block. Dragon then attempts a dragon suplex, but Mysterio drops down to lead the two going through a roll-up sequence full of two counts, followed by Ultimo missing a spinning heel kick, allowing Ray to nail a springboard hurricanrana for the pin. And the win. Good, solid stuff. Ray's working from underneath, but very valiantly, and eked out the win. We go to the back, and Lee Marshall again tries to speak with Nash. But Six answers the door again, when the Steiners would run in and interrupt before he can say anything. Officials are holding them back, with Nash yelling that this is an ambush. But Marshall just says that they want to know what his demands are. And Kevin says he has no problem facing them alone. But he wants Nick Patrick as the ref before spinning in Scott's face and closing the door. And at this point, Scott just loses it and starts shoving security only for them to tackle him and mace him in the eyes before handcuffing Scott as he screams. What is the deal with just running the Steiner brothers through the dirt for no reason? Seems a bit excessive. Yeah. I mean, did that guy spit at him? Spit in his face a couple weeks after running him off the road and making him flip in a car. Yeah. And terrorizing his brother. Now he gets maced. Yeah. And it's because he shoved security. Dick. Yeah. Hospitalized his his brother. Well, I guess next time he's just gonna have to slam security because that's the only way that they don't do anything. I guess if you don't take him out, then they attack. Man, yeah, this is pro signer podcast. Mm. Fuck Kevin Nash. I mean, it's basically made so. It wasn't a two-on-one handicap match. Yeah, yeah, I know. I get it. I get it. So we go to our second match. Medusa versus Akira Hokuto with Sonny Ono for the WCW World Women's Championship. And the last time we saw the World Women's Championship was... I'm just kidding. You don't Starcade 96. Oh, he's the guy! Episode 232. (laughs) But there is a story behind this match. As Medusa had appeared on Nitro accusing Bischoff of ignoring the women. Imagine that. That he brought her here and had her drop a belt in the trash. And while she was giving this interview, Akira would attack her. I will say I'm slightly disappointed in the lack of pageantry from for Akira's entrance because last time she wore the fucking... That crazy, like, Mask and yeah, it looked yeah. like the beginning of what is it, Star Wars, uh, Empire Strikes Back. It looked like some crazy fur thing with like a mask that would hook up to a fucking space jet. Mm-hmm. She looked awesome. Not that she doesn't look awesome here. Well, she can, in comparison, she doesn't look awesome. I mean, she still has cool <laughs> gear, and I like the makeup on her nose. It kind of makes her look like a cat, like you know, like a like a tiger or something. Not like a. Weird kitty. Yeah, not like a weird, gross internet kitty cat girl. Like a predator cat. Like an internet predator cat. <laughs> like gotcha. an internet predator cat. <laughs> like you're hooking up with the internet predator cat. So Lee Marshall joins the commentary booth for this match because, as we found out the last time we had a women's match, he's the expert. I guess so. On women? Lee Marshall, the expert on women. <laughs> Good to know. 
So Hokuto drags Medusa around the ring by her hair multiple times, but then misses a charge into the corner, allowing Medusa to get in some pretty weak strikes, only for Akira to fire back with a clothesline. Those hair throws. Ugh. I, know I, know, I know they're holding their hands and whatnot, but... It's still, like, it's got, like, you're going to get... Yeah. Yeah. Because they, like, wrap their fingers around inside the hair. And, yeah. yeah. It's like you grab the wrist, but you're not going to get it all. Mm-mm. It's going to... Yeah. Hokuto begins choking Medusa as the commentators have still yet to say anything about what's happening in the ring, but continue to talk about what just happened backstage. Imagine that. And Shivani finally realizes it and tries to direct everyone's attention as Akira nails a body slam and makes a cover, only for Medusa to bridge out after a one count. Medusa with several sling blades rips her vest open before making a cover for a near fall. And Akuto rakes the eyes and heads up top. But Medusa responds with a handstand head scissors to take her down to the mat. Fun spot and also USA, USA. Medusa tries to pick her up, only for Akira to start biting her. When Marshall starts talking about Hog Wild, when Odo was managing Bull Nakano. They, they, they beat up her motorcycle. Yep. And Hokuto distracts the ref while Sunny gets a few shots in, only for Medusa to punch back. Akira then lifts Medusa up into a firewoman's carry, but Medusa <laughs> counters into a crucifix pin attempt for a two count followed by multiple missile drop kicks and a bridging German suplex for the pin. And no, Kuto kicks out. I mean, Medusa, what is the deal with her just constantly being in incredible shape? It's crazy. It's just, yeah. And never working. What is her motivation? I mean, that's, I mean you know, health. that's why she's in incredible shape. Yeah. Health and wealth and all those things. But In the back, just training, oh. waiting, waiting to be seen. Odo jumps on the apron to argue with the ref, so Medusa kicks him down, allowing Hakuto to grab a waistlock, but Medusa elbows free and tries for a powerbomb, when Luna Vashon would run out, kicking Medusa in the leg, all while Sunny still has the ref distracted, and Akira lands on top of Medusa for the pin, and, and the, the win. win. By the way, we haven't seen Luna since Heat Wave 95. Episode 158. Was that the cage match? I think so. Or at least it was around that. It yep. was that era. Uh, I mean, I was excited to see Luna back. I like Luna Vachon. Yeah. I'm also excited to see Hokuto back. It's been since the last arcade, and uh, this was short and quick, but full of energy. And then the most unintentionally funny moment. Oh, bring it on. Ever happens. In the post-match, as Akuto and Odo go running down the aisle to escape a very angry Medusa, a fan reaches out to give her a high five, but Akuto never sees it, and the gentleman ends up groping her. Accidentally. Accidentally. Okay. While Tony sends Lee to the back to keep us abreast of the situation. situation. Is that the quickest Tony uh, Shivani's ever been? He's not the quickest guy. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe he is when boobs are involved. Sorry, maybe. when a breast is involved. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Huh. Funny stuff. I had to pause the <laughs> video and just like laugh for like five minutes straight. Yeah. Oh, uh, I guess it was 
uncensored where Sonny Ono did the combo kicks. He's getting more involved as opposed to just, you know, getting on the ring and he's actually attacking people. But he did, I remember on that show, I don't know if I brought it up, he did like a pretty good looking kick combo when he was managing and uh, didn't think he had it in him. Because you see Sonny Ono and you don't think, oh, this guy's I mean, guy's the very first time we ever saw Sonny Ono, he was the referee for a, for a martial arts match. So yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he probably... Yeah. By no means am I... Yes, we know, we know. Like... My, yeah, my assumption was completely the opposite. Assumption, so we're meeting assuming, in the middle. Yeah, assuming that because he's Asian, he knows, how to, knows some kind of martial art. I mean, but my assumption was that he yeah. wasn't trained or wrestled at all, and we, he did a convincing kick in that. We had a martial arts match in the last WCW show that he had no, no involvement in, so... That's true. Yeah. Yeah. He's in the clear. For sure, but yeah, I was just thinking about his involvement in this match and how he's gotten a little more brash, but it jogged my memory to a couple episodes ago where he landed a combo on somebody and it didn't look like shit. So we go to our third match. Lord Steven Regal versus Prince Iakea. Okay. For the WCW World Television Championship. And Regal bad and argues with the fans to start before the two trade strikes. Before also exchanging holds and headlocks until Lord Steven tosses the prince out of the ring, only for Iakea to jump back in with a springboard crossbody for a two-count. It's moving quick. Our commentators are still not talking about the match, but do inform us that Scott Steiner has been arrested, and Hogan's not here because he's off filming a movie. Santo with muscles, too. Sure. They then go to a test of strength. With Regal going down with a bridge, only to kip up and rake the ice, allowing him to apply a full Nelson, which the Prince escapes and goes for a sunset flip, only for Lord Stephen to stay up and punch down. Regal continues to work over IK in a corner when the Prince delivers some chops, forcing Lord Stephen to reach the ropes to force a break. And Regal whips IK into a corner, leaping up and off, only for Lord Stephen to sidestep it and go back to pounding on the prince until Iakea reverses a whip and nails a back body drop. The prince with chops and a thrust kick, whipping Regal to a corner where he sidesteps Iakea charging in, cradling him up, but the prince hooks the legs to sit down on top of Lord Stephen for the pin and, and the, the win. win. I kind of don't like Prince Iakea outsmarting Lord Stephen. Okay with him overpowering him, which he kind of did here, but he also kind of outsmarted him a little yeah. bit. I mean, we all love Steven Regal, but there's kind of nothing I love more than him just yelling at the crowd with one arm behind his back. It's so fucking good. I mean, it's he's not the first guy to do it, but he's the guy doing it now. And he's the guy that does it possibly better than a lot of those others i mean yeah it's like one of those things where it's like it's hard to judge because the guys that he's pulling from are guys that you know we don't have i mean at least i personally don't have intimate knowledge of watching his uh his big british inspirations because i haven't seen much of uh that classic british catch style wrestling 
Post-match, Regal attacks Ikea, dropping a knee to his palm trees before locking on the Regal stretch, only stopping long enough to admonish the ref before returning to the hold while also nailing the back of the head with the title belt. Not as coconuts? Multitask. <laughs> we then go to Mean Gene on the Old West set. Could you imagine if Mean Gene had a fucking cowboy hat on? A bolo tie? How good would that be? Call the hotline. There's a new click in town. Mm-hmm. It's not the one we usually speak about. While there was also a car accident involving WCW stars. That seems a little predatory. <laughs> Like, are we still talking about the Steiners, or literally, or are we just all bad drivers? Yeah, That's yeah. Cool. It's like, a car accidents in wrestling uh, are not super uncommon. <laughs> like, it's kind of fucked up. Mean Gene then welcomes in the nature boy, Ric Flair, who predicts the Horseman will win tonight, before also announcing he will return on May 1st. But Arn is going to have neck surgery very soon. Okerlund then asks Nate about Roddy Piper, which leads to Flair making an offer to both Roddy and NFL star Kevin Green. Give it up. To join him in facing the NWO at Slamboree. And my first question is, why would Green trust the horseman after the last time he was there? And who cares about Kevin Green? Are you just bringing him back in here because Rodman was here recently? He's not Dennis Rodman. Yeah, I mean, he could beat up Dennis Rodman, probably. He's a football player. They could have just used old... What's his nuts? Deborah's husband. Mongo. Oh, Mongo. I mean, he was the last guy that went after Green, so it only makes sense that he would go after Rodman. There's only one... But Rodman's Rodman's a one-night thing, I think. I mean, I doubt Rodman's going to be in this match. No, I mean, he's playing for the Bulls right now. They were pissed at... Like... The Rodman always performed when he showed up, but they kind of just gave him a lot of rope. So, like, that's why he got to do things like this or just, like, fuck off and skip practice because for some reason he made it work whenever he was there. He's uh, special in that way. He's got the cult of personality. You call him a punk? <laughs> mean Gene then asks about Eric Bischoff. With the Nature Boy saying he wants to face him at least once before the end of his career. Even tying his arms and legs together to face him. What is he going to do? Fight him with one arm tied behind his back and both legs tied together. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. I mean, start. I don't think very much of Eric Bischoff, but... I know he's at least a black belt, so... Sure. He can do moves probably better than Glacier. Possibly. I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of a fan of the Glacier match. <laughs> so we're headed to our fourth match. The public enemy of Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge versus the horsemen of Steve Mongo McMichael and Jeff Jarrett. Hey, it happened this time. With Deborah. And Rock and Mongo start us off with a shoving match until McMichael misses a charge into a corner. Only for Double J to nail Rocco with a clothesline from the apron, which brings Johnny running in only for Mongo to hit several three-point stances on both men to send them out to regroup, allowing the horsemen to strut. Did that warm your cold heart just a little bit? A little bit. I don't ever need to see Mongo strut. Just a a little bit. He was so bad at it. He was. 
But these guys were the first time they teamed up. Mongo threw the match because he was so disapproving of Jeff Jarrett. I believe the word you're looking for is disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> Jarrett and Ground Jenna legal men now when Johnny telegraphs a back body drop, allowing Double J to deliver a face smash and lock on an ab stretch, taking hold of Mongo's hand for extra leverage until the ref catches them, so Johnny hip tosses out of it. Has anybody had a finisher or signature move called the Rock Lobster? Don't think so. Yeah, not that I know of. I imagine it's just some kind of like maybe modified camel clutch. Maybe wrap up their legs, push them in, crank the neck back. Uh, you could do that, but they'd have to have like rock somewhere in their name. <laughs> rock or rock, maybe that's why like, I thought of it. Or, you know, a nickname. Yeah, like, you know, the manhandle slam or... <laughs> Yeah. What if Shark Boy had that as a Oh, there you yeah. go. Uh huh. Perfect. Or maybe he's just like, a, like an old school fisherman, and he's called the Mainer. <laughs> People from Mainer called them Mainers. I think is this no. what they call themselves. No, not laughing at that. One. Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, it's meant to be bad. The two trade strikes when Grunge hits an atomic drop to send Jarrett crashing into McMichael. So Double J rolls out to regroup. Mongo and Rock both tag in with the Horseman teaming up for a double back elbow, followed by McMichael wearing Rocco down with a rear chin lock and a side slam before nailing Johnny in the corner, which brings him in. So Mongo goes for a cover for a two count as the ref was busy getting grunge out of the ring. Hey, Mongo, when you hit the other guy, they usually run in. You usually don't go for a cover next thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, Psychology it was... there was... Not good. It was silly. He is looking a little better in the ring, but he doesn't have the psychology of uh, a Jeff Jarrett. What ring are you looking at? I said a little better. <laughs> Michael with forearms to the back of Rock before hitting a tilt-a-whirl slam for a near fall as Johnny makes the save, which brings in Double J to brawl with Grunge out on the floor. He did a tilt-a-whirl slam. He would have done that six months ago. And Deborah tries to break that up to no avail. So Jarrett ends up being sent into the guardrail, while Mongo and Rocco brawl down the aisle to the set, knocking down steers and being thrown into a covered wagon. I know, I was kind of upset that they went and did that, but the cameras didn't really catch any of it. It's like, come on, if they're going to knock over this cool set, then let's see some of it. Johnny sets a table up at ringside, so Deborah slaps him, only for Grunge to just place her on the table. But Double J makes the save with a chair shot to the back, allowing Deborah to get away. Jarrett is then smashed face first into the steel steps and is set on the table, followed by Johnny making his way to the top rope, leaping off, only for Double J to move in time, so Grunge crashes through nothing but wood. And all four men make their way back to the ring with Jarrett leaping in with a top rope crossbody on Johnny for a two count, as Rock makes the save. Feels like Rocco's typically the first one through the wood, but maybe that's the thing. He's like, I did this the whole time that we were in ECW. It's your turn now, brother. We're getting paid, and it's yeah, time for you to put some miles on your odometer. Plus, he just had to shave his head, so yeah, he doesn't have the extra protection there from like splinters and stuff. Oh, man. And he was a good friend. Last show, they both went through the table. Double J rolls out, leaving Michael alone with Public Enemy, 
where they go for a double-team clothesline, which Mongo ducks. Pugliami then bounces back off the ropes, only for Deborah to trip up Rocco, sending Grunge right into a power slam from McMichael, followed by an attempted double knocker that's blocked, leading to Public Enemy clotheslining Mongo out to the floor. But he made a blind tag as he was falling out. Jarrett jumps in with, as a house of fire, with right hands, body slams, and drop kicks that send Rock out to the floor. But Johnny reverses a whip and tries for a powerbomb, only for McMichael to run in to nail a clothesline from behind. Rocco grabs the briefcase while Double J locks on the figure four, and the ref is trying to get Mongo out of the ring. Rock then runs in, smashes the briefcase over the head of Jarrett, leading to Double J having his shoulders down for the pin and the win. It's all a little win for, you know, the... Public Enemy's on a roll, guys. Yeah, for the, for the trash boys. I mean, like, Jarrett is... Jarrett, he's good. He's great. Southern wrestling legend. But him and Mongo are just never going to get over. So might as well be Public Enemy. Because Mongo's in there. And I just complimented the man. But still. Mean Jean's in the locker room with Harlem Heat and Sister Sherry. And Okerlund says the four corners match is important. Every man is for himself and the winner gets a WCW title match. And that these men could end up fighting each other. And Sherry assures Gene that they have it all figured out. That they have a plan. And Booker T tells Mean Gene not to worry about clicks other than them. They take what they want, and after they are done with Luger and Giant, they're coming for Hulk Hogan. What? Whoa, whoa. You can't say that, Booker. I mean, the smile on his face and then the disappointment. Sucka. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell he realized he made a huge mistake, and Sherry's laughing at him, but, but then like his face, like he looks like he is about to ball. He's got the smirk, and then it's one of those things too. It's like fuck, I could get in so much trouble for this. Like he is yeah. like so worried. He's not even gonna make the match. He's gonna get fired as soon as he walks yeah. off camera. But I mean, he's fired up and. He used it in the, like, colloquial way. <laughs> the funny part is, is that the network spices him, spices in him saying sucka again. Yeah, I know. I, uh, yeah, they did yeah. that on my... Oh, did they? Yeah, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, I've seen that clip a million times. It gets shared regularly because, well, I mean, it's funny. And, yeah, when I was like, oh, this is the clip, because I'd seen it so many times. I was like, oh, this is that show. And then, uh, yeah, I had to rewind it a few times because I got a kick out of... The, honestly, pretty decent paste, cut and paste job, but it was, uh, this Oakland. one's kind of up there with the, like, Shockmaster, as far as famous promo botches yeah. or segment bluffs. Okerlund then turns to Stevie to ask about the rack and the choke slam, but he asks them, what about our moves? This isn't a rumpus room sucker. He says rumpus room. It's time to go to school. Rumpus room is so funny, especially after your par- partner just used like a word you can't use on television. Or podcasts. 
I mean, we can't use it on podcast, that's for sure. <laughs> so we head to our fifth match. Chris Benoit with Woman versus Dean Malenko for the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. I mean, we love, love to hear it, love to see it. So the two trade holds, takedowns, shoulder blocks, and reversals to start for a stalemate. Followed by a test of strength and more holds, which leads to Dean delivering a back suplex, turnbuckle smashes, and a small package for a two count. Benoit fires back with chops, but Malenko responds with a drop toe hold into a camel clutch and a short arm scissors. Only for the crippler to escape by countering into a one-armed back suplex. Benoit with another back suplex and a short arm clothesline for a near fall. Applies an ab stretch momentarily before choking Dean on the ropes. And the crippler continues with a reverse neck breaker and a release snap suplex for several two counts. Followed by working Malenko over in a corner. But a reversed whip allows Dean to nail a clothesline Attempt a suplex, only for Benoit to float over to hit a reverse suplex. It's so nice, too, because, like, Benoit will work well with anybody, but when he can work with somebody like Dean Malenko, there's that extra bit of grit and trying and uh, laying it in, and you can kind of feel, you can feel the extra energy. Mm-hmm. Miss Jacqueline then runs down and starts beating down woman. Jimmy Hart then comes running out, right past the cat fight, as the crippler flies off the top rope with a headbutt. For the pin! And no! Malenko kicks out. And Hart steals the belt and is headed back up the aisleway. When Eddie Guerrero, who's in an arm sling, tells him to put the title back where he found it. And in the ring, the crippler drops Dean on the ropes with a front suplex, leaving Malenko on the apron, where he shoulder blocks Benoit, followed by vertical suplexing him out to the floor. That's always one of my least favorites. It just something that makes my stomach drop just seeing somebody get suplexed out of the ring. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long way down. Yep. It is. It's a huge and like I feel like by the time they get back in the ring, Benoit's Hand is bloodied. Yes. Do you think he cut? Do you think he cut it on the way down, or is there a spot? Because I was trying to find where it happened in the match, but I couldn't quite figure it out. If your hand's bleeding, it's probably hard way. You think so? Yeah. Weird. I don't, I don't see why you would, why you would uh, blade your arm. No, it was like yeah, his knuckles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I don't know why you N- played that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it was hard way, I didn't think he did it himself. I was just curious where it happened because I was kind of trying to. I went back into the match and was trying to find out where. Jackie and, Jackie and Woman still brawling. Eddie still arguing with Jimmy. All while our competitors are brawling at ringside. When Arn Anderson comes down and What's hits Dean on? from behind and rolls him in. Kevin Sullivan then runs down and whacks the crippler in the back of the head with a stick. And the ref has just had enough of this mayhem. Calling for the bell and the no contest. I mean, can you blame him? Post-match, Hart, Jacqueline, and the Taskmaster place the U.S. belt on Guerrero's shoulder and lead him down the aisle with him fighting it the entire time. So weird. In the ring, Malenko wakes up Benoit, saying to him, 
he was not supposed to be here, but never specifying who he is. Hmm. What was this? So, there was an idea of Dean, the Crippler, and Eddie teaming up as a stable versus older wrestlers, maybe even like a anti-horseman faction. Yeah, young legend killers, if you will. Young bucks. <laughs> uh, what, what what were they when they went to WWE? Oh, the New Radicals? New or... Radicals. Yeah. Because, I mean, literally, that's four yeah. of them right there. Yeah. But it was dropped. So all this confusion in this match was for... Not. Nothing. Hmm. It's weird because it's like, well, Sullivan and Benoit... Okay, but we've been doing that for like three years off and on now. Yeah. And the rest of it was just kind of... Arn's supposed to be getting neck surgery soon. Yeah. I was surprised that Arn came out. Yeah. Hmm. And it's weird because these guys were working really hard and then it's like, I guess because maybe they're great wrestlers that know each other and work well, but maybe they were trying to get an angle over, but my God, did it not work? Nothing. Like... Once Jackie comes out, it's just like this match just goes... Out the window. It just falls off a cliff because yeah. you're just like, what is going on? Yeah. There's no... Yeah, it's the rhyme, like the, There's no rhyme or reason to anything that happens. So the last person you expected to come out, and I didn't expect necessarily anybody to come out. Mm-hmm. And if I did, it would have been somebody like a Six or an Eddie Guerrero. Which Eddie came out, didn't really, you know... Yeah, he came and, out and yeah. ended up... I mean, Eddie was trying to do the... Right, good, thing, yeah, yeah, but then ends up getting escorted out by the bad guys. Yeah. I was just like, yeah. What is going on? Yeah, I mean, this was, yeah, this was like the Eddie the, Guerrero, yeah. the new face of fear. The math did not add up here. So, we go to our sixth match Kevin Nash with six and Ted DiBiase versus Rick Steiner for the WCW World Tag Team Championships. The champ came out first. Foreshadowing. I mean, come on. I would love to see it. Get him. Get him, Rick. I'll have you know that ooh, I ooh, even ooh. said that as I was watching the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do it every time. I would like every, I'm like, oh, I'll write it down. <clears throat> I write it down. I think it. Just, you know, make the lexicon. Yes. <laughs> Rick goes right after Nash, but the outsider drives him down with clotheslines, knees, and back elbows before charging into a big boot in a Steiner line. Yeah. Rick hits a belly-to-belly suplex and a power slam for a two-count before going to run the ropes where six low bridges, sending Steiner tumbling out to the floor. This is kind of like the uh, what if Pitbull 2 didn't break his neck for a full year <laughs> kind of vibes. But it kind of works as everybody knows and loves Rick Steiner. Six then stomps on Rick before Steiner's brought back in for a sidewalk slam by Nash for a near fall. Kevin chokes Rick in the ropes, followed by DiBiase getting a shot in and a running straddle by Nash. DiBiase's getting involved. Big boot and a jackknife powerbomb from the outsider. Makes the cover for the pin. And no, Steiner kicks out. You love to see it. It kind of, you know, you don't expect somebody to just kick out of a jackknife. You don't expect to see it that early. Hmm. Nash keeps up the attack with more elbows and chokes before trying for another powerbomb. But Rick goes low to slow the momentum. He then heads up top for a flying bulldog for a two count. 
with the commentators acting like Kevin didn't get his shoulder up, but he clearly did. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes... I mean, they're just trying to hope that the bad guys lose. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I didn't have any problem with. No, no, no. Well, I mean, at least they're not talking... They're sending... Because there's an NWO member in this match, they're not sending it to the back twice to yeah. the match. So. Imagine that. Yeah, so now they have to do their job. Rick connects with three Steiner lines. Yeah. No cells, a spinning roundhouse kick from six you to the back it. of the head from the apron. Turning around to knock the kid off, but then turns back to Nash, only to get clotheslined. Boo. Six goes to take off the top turnbuckle pad, but he struggles, so DiBiase has to help him. Even with literally everyone in the ring just stopping and watching them do this. Like, just, they're literally just standing there and like, like look over. Nick Patrick's like, oh, like standing there like How long are you going to take? Are you done, done yet? Yeah. yeah? No? Maybe? Yeah. It's a, it seems like a Ted job. Not a six job. Kevin drops Steiner with snake eyes twice on the exposed turnbuckle. When Ted jumps on the apron to tell Nash to end this but the outsider yells back, You're with us. I'll tell you when it's enough. Can't treat your manager like that. Kevin hits another snake eyes. With DiBiase having it enough at this point. So he walks to the back. With even Patrick starting to argue with Nash about the punishment. NWO has gone too far. The outsider delivers one more snake eyes on the exposed steel. And another jackknife powerbomb, making the cover, with the ref making the hesitant count for the pin and the win. You know what the issue with this was? Uh, the turnbuckle spot happened. to the end of the match, because before that, it was pretty alright. I mean, it was a complete squash match. Yeah, but I mean, there was, there was some energy and the crowds behind Rick. And then you're going to do him like that where everybody watches the turnbuckle spot. And then he gets punked like that. I mean, personally, the only stuff that was interesting was the chink in the NWO's armor at the end of the match. Yeah. I mean, yes. I just... I always want more for Rick. We go to the back. Mean Gene's there with Lex Luger and the Giant. And Okerlund asks the big man for his thoughts. With him responding that it's Hogan's plan to pit brother versus brother... And friend versus friend. But me and Lex are more than friends. We will ride or die together, and whoever wins deserves the title shot. Followed then by promising to win. And Lex is asked about the importance of the title, with him saying that the giant has been to hell and back with the NWO. That we are sick of what's going on, and WCW is there to claim what is theirs. And Luger continues that Hogan is the emblem of the NWO, and everyone knows it. But this is for everything they stand for, wanting to put prestige back on the name of WCW. Love to hear it, but I'll believe it when I see it. So we get our seventh match. Booker T versus Stevie Ray with Sister Sherry versus Lex Luger versus Giant in a four corners match. To be the number one contender for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. First pinfall or submission wins. It's weird that the Harlem Heat 
are the two members of this match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But okay. I mean, Arn and um, Rick are injured, and um, the Steiners are caught up in another thing. Yeah. Who are you going to put in there? Sting is in the rafters. This kind of like just proves how like thin the lineup is at the moment. Yeah. DDP's yeah. dealing with Savage. Yeah. That's, some, that's our main event. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Luger and Booker start us off after with a feeling out process until Lex ducks a sidekick and clotheslines Booker T, followed by a press slam. Booker responds with a knee lift, turnbuckle smashes and chokes before charging into a big boot, allowing Luger to deliver a clothesline. Booker T with a rake of the eyes and tags in Stevie, who works over Lex with right hands until Luger ducks a clothesline and nails one of his own, sending Stevie Ray towards the corner for the giant to ping-pong punching back to Lex for another clothesline for a two-count. And the giant's tagged in with Stevie trying to work him over, only for the big man to take over with multiple clotheslines that send Stevie Ray out to the floor to regroup. And Booker runs in, but he's pressed slam by the Giant, sending him out to the floor to regroup with his brother, telling him to get back in so Sherry has to get them refocused. So they basically just start arguing with each other. It's not the plan, guys. No. If either one of you wins, it's a positive. You're the underdog. Stevie returns to the ring, but walks over and tags in Luger while his back is turned to the crowd, forcing the Giant to face his partner. Bum, bum, bum. And Lex avoids a clothesline and attempts to body slam the Giant, only for the weight to be too much, so the big man falls on top for a near fall. Both men then tag in both members of Harlem Heat, where they argue and shove each other before they trade hammerlocks, headlocks, and whips which sees Booker duck a clothesline, followed by a leapfrog, with Stevie Ray turning around, and the two just do a handshake of sorts. Booker T then tags in Luger, with Stevie wanting a test of strength. But Lex kicks him in the gut, and fires away with right hands and turnbuckle smashes, only for Stevie Ray to fight back, before tagging in Booker for a sidewalk slam. And Luger avoids a fist drop, allowing him to tag in the Giant, who comes in with a headbutt, clotheslines, chops, and a body slam. But he misses a running elbow drop. It's funny that Stevie and Lex Luger kind of like swapped there. It's like Luger should have went for the test of strength and Stevie should have kicked him in the gut. (laughs) Two of these guys are heels and it it was just kind of funny. Stevie runs in to stop away, followed by a Harlem Heat double-team clobbering in the corner. Before Stevie Ray nails a bicycle kick and Booker T with a leaping leg lariat, leaving the giant staggering so Booker works the knees. And Stevie returns for the worst snapmare ever, <laughs> before missing a leg drop, allowing the giant to deliver a knee lift and a big boot, followed by Lex with a body slam and a series of elbow drops. For a two count. And Stevie Ray slows the momentum by yanking Luger into the turnbuckles before tagging his brother in, only to miss a charge into the corner, allowing Lex to nail a back suplex 
but Stevie attacks from behind and hits a bad-looking suplex, with Booker making a cover for a near fall. And Booker T then with a knee drop and a chin lock, only for Luger to elbow free, but Booker comes right back with another leg lariat for a two count. Stevie Ray returns for more double-team clobbering, nailing a running clothesline and goes to a chin lock, with Lex elbowing free again, followed by a back suplex. I mean, Stevie Ray, they're just putting all the weight on his back, and he's normally not that guy. And it shows. And it shows, but hey, he's a better wrestler than... Ahmed Johnson. No, no, (laughs) no, no. He's better than Mustafa or, like, New Jack. But... Yeah. Yeah, but that's not saying much. Stevie tags out to Booker T, who runs over to nail the giant to keep Luger from tagging out, before hitting a scissor kick, taunting the crowd and making a cover for a near fall as the big man breaks it up. Stevie Ray comes in and drops Lex with a sidewalk slam, followed by Harlem Heat attempting a rocket launcher, only for Luger to move out of the way, allowing him to crawl to the corner for the hot tag. Headbutt and power slam to Stevie, several big boots to Booker, knocking him out of the ring. The giant thing calls for the choke slam but decides to walk over to Lex, telling him to tag in, before looking like he's having a temper tantrum doing the torture rack foes. <laughs> Luger hey, gets hey, Stevie Ray up in the torture rack for the submission and, and the win, win to become the number one contender. I mean, it's, it's Lex's turn. It's not the Giants' turn. Nobody wants the Giant in a singles match as a number one contender. We've seen it a lot the last couple of years. So, we got our main event for next month's pay-per-view, right? Oh, I mean, that's, was, that's my assumption? Nope. They don't face each other until August. Makes sense. It does. I can't imagine it takes that long to make a Hulk Hogan movie. It's like that time when Savage won that match and Hogan was going to get a rematch or mm. something like that and then they didn't fight for like a year. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. Post-match, Dusty says the Giant took a big step at manhood and iconism. Iconism. While the two friends hug and celebrate. Mm. We then go to a commercial for Slamboree where Heenan, Dusty, and Zabisco speak about the issues with the NWO. Too many guys selling their souls. WCW needs a leader, and someone needs to get Hogan. Nothing sells a pay-per-view like the announcers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody needs to. Like, we don't, they're not even like talking about maybe who. Because they can't be like, next month, can Luger take down... Hogan, because it's not happening. So we go to our eighth match. Macho Man Randy Savage with Miss Elizabeth versus Diamond Dallas Page with Kimberly in a no-DQ match. Here's one they pulled the trigger on quickly. So Savage and Liz are shown leaving their dressing room and headed to the ring, where Macho says this will be a walk in the park, that he's going to mud on the bum. Before throwing a party with Slim Jims 
and 14 to 22 women. What a weird number. I hope he's talking about the amount of women and not their ages. And then he asked Miss Elizabeth if she has a problem with that, with her responding no. Mm-hmm. Ain't <laughs> so, my husband anymore. So I mean, yeah, <laughs> 14 to 22 women. It's like, you mean like the amount, right? Please, thank you. They then end up getting lost backstage, so he has to ask which way to the ring, but they finally make their way out. Mean Gene is then in the back with DDP, who says that a man has to stand up for what matters, that Savage stepped into his world, finding out what matters to him, before inviting Kim to join them. And she says this is the most important match in Paige's life, and he will get macho for what he did to her. Kimberly continues that normally she wants DDP to stay positive, but rage is an important emotion, so she's going to let it ride. Finishing with, his rage is going to even the odds. Solid, solid line and logic. Michael Buffer makes the announcements, so let's get ready to bang! You saw that one coming, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, you're reading the notes. Yeah, I'm reading the notes, but come on. So Savage takes the mic to tell Paige that this isn't your big day. It's your last day on Earth before stalling by standing on the apron, slipping in and out of the ring until DDP finally comes out to brawl in the aisleway. Paige throws Macho into a guardrail so hard that Savage's foot comes up off the ground to hit a kid in the face. Oof. Who sells it better than most wrestlers? <laughs> it's a shoot kick, brother. Back in the ring, Savage tries to escape out the other side, only for DDP to pull him back in and telegraph a back body drop, allowing Macho to kick him away. Page responds with a botched inverted atomic drop, just slamming him down. I mean, the rage is taking over. He's seeing red. I'm just justifying it. DDP tries for a diamond cutter, but Savage hooks the ropes to block, causing Paige to fall down to the mat and rolling out to the apron, where Macho hotshots him across the ropes, sending him down to the floor. Savage follows out to toss DDP into the ground, brawling amongst the people and using a trash can and TV cable, before returning to ringside where Macho grabs Kimberly, while Liz rakes Paige across the back. Who'd you learn that one from? I mean, it could have been Randy. Yeah, he, I mean, does, it he does it too. But I don't hate when he does it. Savage then tosses Kim at DDP, allowing him to nail Paige in the head, ramming him into the guardrail several times. And Macho comes off the top turnbuckle with a double axe handle before tossing DDP into the still steps multiple times before rolling him into the ring where Savage makes a cover with leverage for a two count. Now Macho grabs Buffer's chair and nails Paige across the back before going back out to grab David Penzer's chair while also slapping him and stomping away on the longtime WCW ring announcer. Oh my god. Which was a planned spot but Buffer didn't know about it so his look of like what the fuck what the fuck's going on is real. I mean even if it's a planned spot, I feel like I would never be comfortable around Randy Mas- Macho Man Savage. His energy 
is just like fuck. Could you imagine just hanging out with him? It sounds intense. I mean, he's always on eleven. Yeah. But I would, I would let him slap me. I mean, I'm, I, I mean, I would not not show up to the party. But I imagine that my nerves would be shot by the time I went home. As Savage makes his way back in, DDP grabs the original chair and throws it at Macho yeah. before slamming it into his face. Good and spot. The, the two trade strikes in a corner, but a reverse whip allows Savage to clothesline Page for a near fall, only for DDP to fire back with a discus clothesline, leaving both men down. He had to dig deep. Macho was first up to nail a trio of scoop slams before going back out to the floor to grab the ring bell, climbing to the top rope, only for Kimberly to climb up to take the weapon away. I mean, you know, it's been a while since he pulled out the ring bell. Savage yells at her, and he leaps off towards Paige, only to eat boot. (sighs) DDP then calls for the finish, but Macho counters into a low blow for a near fall. And Savage is pissed at the ref's count. So he slaps and pile drives Mark Curtis before taking the belt off of the ref and whipping him with it. Damn. Macho then throws Curtis out of the ring, heading up top again to deliver the Savage elbow drop. But there's no ref. Until Nick Patrick runs out. And the two men hug and shake hands. While Kevin Nash stands and smiles. In the entryway. What is the logic there? It's Nick Patrick's the NWO ref. I know, but he just had an issue with Kevin Nash recently. Mm-hmm, just that Nash show. took it too far. Yeah. Yeah, but he's what still is, the NWO ref. But what is Randy doing? He's taking it too far. I mean, I, mean, I get it. Not. I get it, but I don't get it. Macho goes for a body slam, but Paige counters into the diamond cutter, yeah! making the cover with Patrick conflicted. On what to do, only to eventually make the count for the pin and, and the, the win. win. I mean, come on, hell yeah! Post match, the NWO comes down with Nash grabbing Nick and checking on Savage. Kevin then power bombs Patrick, followed by Macho punting DDP out of the ring, leaving Kimberly alone with the NWO. No, oh, I guess. No. Patrick is no longer the NWO ref. I mean, it was teased. Bischoff stops Macho from slapping her as the fans chant, We want Sting! We want Sting! I wasn't ready for Bischoff to charge down to the ring. So Savage begins looking up into the rafters. As only he can do. Macho finally releases Kim, but shoves Eric down causing the rest of the NWO to separate the two. And the commentators recap what just happened, with Tony saying the NWO is in turmoil, Dusty saying there's cracks in the armor, and the brain tells Hogan to call somebody, daring him to put the group back together, before Shivani says goodbye as we go to credits. So I have a fun, heartwarming story for us. Let's hear it. Uh, I have an assumption, but I'm excited to hear. So Savage had creative control in his contract. So when they asked him what he wanted to do in this match, he said he wanted to take the diamond cutter. 
which would help push DDP into being a top-level guy. I mean, come on. Now, later in the year, Paige would call Macho and leaving a message on his phone, thanking him for everything he did. And Savage would play the message to his dad, asking him if he had ever heard such a thing from the boys, which just very uncommon. Yeah, I mean, it's very, like, it's a very manly thing to go. You'd try to, you know, doing the right thing at the right time, sometimes it's your hand is forced. But it's not forced here because it's got creative control. The booker tells you to do a thing, you might think it's the right thing to do, but not want to do it. So the next time the two men saw each other, Macho would approach Paige with that intensity that only Savage has. Yes. Making DDP think he was in trouble. But Macho told him that the message meant everything to him. I mean, uh, that's the, the, the clear difference between a Hogan and a Macho Man. Macho Man knew that, I mean, knew that he could survive the loss and knew that it was the right thing to do, especially as we just talked about throughout this show, that the field is kind of small. And it can't hurt. DDP been solidly getting over for quite a while now. But a win over the Macho Man is huge. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I ask you gentlemen, what are your overall thoughts of Spring Stampede 1997? There's a bit of rose-colored glasses because I didn't necessarily expect the finish. And as much as it, uh, you know, I didn't know this fun, heartwarming story, but it warmed my heart for somebody to finally do the right and intelligent thing for the business and for the and for a wrestler. But it's not a bad show. It's better than the last WCW pay per view, but it's not. I'm leaning towards like a seven, <laughs> you know, out of ten. Yeah, I don't know, it's a shame. I mean, kind of along the same lines. It was a good show, not a great show, but it had it had some some good moments in it. I enjoyed the fact that there was no Hogan, there was no Bagwell, there was no Hall. You know, the NWO stuff that they had was limited to Nash. Six DiBiase, and they didn't try. And they, I was about to say, they didn't try try to make the whole show. I guess Savage is there too. They didn't try to make the whole show about the NWO like they did in the previous one, where every single match that's all they did was jump back and forth and back and forth and talk about the NWO and ignore everything else that was happening. You know, they did that a few times, but not as badly as they did. So um, I feel like there was too many boo boo finishes. There were, but they they also had some some good spots in there too. Yeah, it was not a bad watch. It was it was mostly easy. I don't really know. My brain is tired, so I'm just like <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out words. I'm trying to think too. I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like, you know, the Lex and Giant moment was nice. Um, yeah, Paige taking the like Macho Man staring at the lights. There's right? more confusing parts than there needed to be. That's for, for sure. sure. Yeah. So, even on the matches that weren't 
quite as good. There were there was a bit of storytelling and some of it not so successful. And character work. I mean, yes, correct. but some of it was successful. And good. some of it was successful. Uh, there's even a match on this show that, if not for the split screen, I would be putting it on the short list. Yeah, Ray and Ultima? Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That match was incredible, and I was so mad when they went to split screen. I did too. It's like, I was so mad that I, like, they did it, Two like... Two shows in a row that they had done yeah. that to us. Yeah. Yeah, and this match, I think, was better than the previous show's match. Yeah. Did. And I'm actually going to give away my MVP for this show right here. Because it deserves that much Is it fairly, recognition. Fairly obvious, or maybe not. The crowd was so into this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the crowd was definitely great, and it's one of those things where it's like it and might be eight thousand people. So it helped me enjoy be it. into this show. That's a really good point because I don't know, like what how much better this what show. What crowd is have than we Uncensored? watched that that has watched Akira Hokuto and Medusa? They were into that match. I mean, it's the benefit of not going to Mississippi very often. You have 8,000 people that sound like 12. Exactly. And there's kids there. Like, I remember there's like maybe like a 12 or 13-year-old girl in like the front row that's like kind of losing her mind the whole show. And it was just nice and charming to see. I don't know if it was her parents next to her or just like some older people that were just kind of getting a kick out of how much she enjoyed it. And that warms my heart when people care or are engaged it truly does add to the enjoyment your there's a thing with modern crowds people just want to say say the thing that they've heard other people say live and it doesn't necessarily make sense or is appropriate because i don't know that they're engaged in the show as much as they're like picking their spot like this is the time where i do this and this is a crowd that sounds like a good 80s NW crowd that is truly engaged in what's happening inside of the building. Absolutely. As opposed to deciding that they're going to yell um, what because they have seen other people do that and heard other people do that. And when someone does it, they follow along because they think it's fun and not because it's appropriate or whatever. Like those crowds today where, you know, somebody gets put in an arm bar and then the crowd starts chanting, this is awesome. <laughs> I mean, I would, yeah. You, you give me a, you give me a uh, like, push off, fucking drop down, leapfrog, hip toss, and I'll say this is awesome at this point because we don't see enough of it, but I know where you're coming from. Good. Where, where's the smart marks at? All right. Fuck you. I think it's time we smart it up. So, what are some of the best moments of this show? Mm. I mean, I mentioned it just a second ago, but that first match is just absolutely yeah, it's wonderful, amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a most surprising. And I mean, I called it out earlier. Tony being on the spot with uh, with abreast. the abreast of the situation, like I laughed so hard. Like it's not, it's not a good moment. No, and it's not even that good of a joke. But it's just like, oh, who knew Tony was that sharp? It's like almost more funny that he was the guy to say yeah. that. That sounds like something Dusty would say. But it might have even been an accident, or Bobby Heenan. Maybe they're rubbing off on him. Uh, the Booker T slip up. I mean, yes, it's um, that's yeah, that's classic stuff. 
I mean, I enjoyed the Benoit Malenko match up until all the yeah I weird just stuff went down. Didn't and, get enough time, and, and it made no sense how it happened or how it happened, how it ended. I mean, that's honestly one of my biggest disappointments is that like it didn't, the angle didn't make sense, and we could have just had the match. I'll say Luger, the Giant realizing that he's had his chance and giving it to Luger. It's really nice. And uh, Luger has had some really great moments recently. And unfortunately, I don't believe that he'll get an opportunity to deliver on his opportunities. But uh, I will be cheering for him when, if he gets them. Also the last match. The first and last match are the two best matches of this entire show. Yeah, absolutely. Because most of the other matches are all... There's fuckery for yeah. the most part. Yeah. I enjoyed those ones. I mean, yeah, Macho and Diamond Dallas Page is that like Macho Man as a heel. It's like he's kind of thriving in this because we haven't seen him quite go this hard in a long time, yeah. and he's really doing it, and it's great. And of course, the crowd is hot. We've seen DDP be a very good heel, but he's never been as good of a heel as Macho Man <laughs> is here. And DDP is a wonderful underdog face. And this is one of the most meaningful angles, even though it's super simple and it's been done a million times before. Like, this is uh, an angle that, you know, you can get behind and you can understand. Yeah. And not just the match itself, but Macho's reasoning for it of he wanted to put ddp over he yeah he understands wrestling so yeah he understands wrestling and he understands where he is in it and where this guy's career is at this moment and like that it's time to do the right thing and he's not bruno san martino and he's not hulk hogan he's macho man randy savage and he doesn't hold belts like that and he can take the loss because he's not that guy he's kind of similar to the undertaker or man or mick foley in a way where it's like he doesn't need a belt yeah he doesn't ever really need a belt he just needs to be himself to the best of his ability and macho man randy savage has no choice but to be himself so it works out pretty well i'd also like to give some flowers to nick patrick mm-hmm. for yeah. Yo, know, in both the matches that we saw him that he like made a difference in. Like you could see him that character work even just Yeah. I mean, it's not it, it, he sold he sold it um without a microphone yep. uh in the ring and that's the thing. You got to sell it to the people in the cheap seats and uh I think he did it really well. Yep. That's a good point. How about most disappointing? Fuckery at the end of Benoit and Malenko. Yeah, I would say that. I would say Steiner getting squeezed. Steiner getting squeezed. Other Steiner getting maced and... Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. I... I didn't care as much for the Booker T, Stevie Ray, Luger... The match went on too long. It did. That was the problem with that match. Because you even mentioned it. They asked Stevie Ray to do too much in that match absolutely like literally cut about three minutes off of it and have booker and luger carry more of the match Mm -hmm. it's a much better match and that would have been totally possible 
if the fuckery, if the if the Benoit and Malenko match went a little longer before the nonsense, or if Steiner got a couple more power moves in on Nash or whatever. It's like those two matches are so short, they're not even matches, and uh, it could have saved the Harlem Heat and WCW four-way match from the feeling overlong, but I do think that they the finish was correct for what they were doing. I mean, the ending was the correct thing. Yeah. Getting there just was took a, a little bit... bit of a slog. Took a little bit longer than it needed to to get there. Because that's not... Yeah, that's not a, a match. That's an angle. Yeah. And the other two things were also angles. Plus, one of them could have been a match. Plus, as soon as they show us the four people, it's like, well, we know it's Luger Giant. So... Yeah, What's... and we know Stevie Ray's taking the pin. Yeah, definitely. How about best performer of the night? Is it... We got uh, four it... guys. I mean, uh, Macho, Diamond Dallas, Page. Ultimo and Ray. Yeah. I'm going to give it to Macho for doing the right thing. Ultimo, That's what I was thinking as well. Ultimo and Ray are always going to be Ultimo and Ray. And, like, they just... Tonight they were on, and they're correct opponents for each other. Diamond Dallas, Page... Completely fit into the his role that evening, but Macho Man was a little extra, which is saying a lot considering we're talking about Randy Savage, a man who's always a little extra. And how about most surprising? Luna. Yeah, I wasn't expecting her. Nope. It's Luna for me. Um, Luna, and then of course... I mean, that there was a women's match at all. Yeah. That's that's, pretty surprising. But yeah, I would say uh, Luna, and then I... It's one of those things where you watch so much wrestling that you're like, oh, you assume a thing will end away. And like, so I was like, oh, but the DDP-Randy Savage match, like I didn't really know who was going to win, but I didn't necessarily think it was going to be... Diamond Dallas Page. So when he did, it's like, oh yeah, this absolutely makes sense, but it was still a surprise because we're so used to the NWO being like, I was like, oh, it got to a point in that match where I was like, there's going to be some fuckery and we're going to get like a DQ and maybe Diamond Dallas Page wins via DQ, but that doesn't mean the same thing at all. So getting the, you know, the clean, the actual like clean pin was a big surprise. Mm-hmm. I could see him winning, just didn't necessarily see him winning with God on his side. I was really surprised that they that the Nash Steiner match was a was a squash match. Like, yeah, that stinks. Like, I totally expected them to at least let Rick be the crazy. Like, it felt like they wanted to do the underdog story because he kicks out of the first jackknife powerbomb. And that's where it starts, and I got excited, and then. And, and then it, it then just, it just keeps going, and then it just turns into an angle of possible NWO issues, and so it's no longer about the match; it was about this, and so it that just made that match just like if it had been a squash, just end it with the first power bomb. Yeah, which man, that would have made me even matter. I think, mm-hmm. but you know what you could have done is Rick Steiner comes back. And has a solid pin on Kevin Nash, 
and Patrick uh, like doesn't want to count it. So another NWO member comes in and breaks up a pin as he's, you know, hesitating. And then Kevin Nash gets the pin. And it's like, oh, like, it's a dissension with Nick Patrick, but NWO is going to NWO, and Rick Steiner doesn't look like a dweeb. But, you know, it is what it is. Did anybody put that much thought into it? Probably not. I don't think so. Because what I just did was pretty simple, and it made a tiny bit more sense. And now for a look back even further into the history of wrestling. The Dusty Finish. The Great Muda had won the IWGP Heavyweight Championship over a year ago when he came to the G1 Climax Special, 1993, to face his fellow Three Musketeer, Shinya Hashimoto, in Nagoya, Japan, on September 20th. Hashimoto, born 1965 in Yokohama, Japan, trained in judo and karate in his late teens before joining the New Japan Dojo in April of 84. He would make his debut at the age of 19 in September 1984 before doing his excursion in Canada at Stampede Wrestling in Puerto Rico in World Wrestling Council. Once he returned to Japan in 1988, he would climb his way up the ladder, taking part in the first Tokyo Dome show in a tournament for the title, losing to Big Bam Vader in the finals. Shinya would team with Masa Saito in late 89 to win the IWGP Tag Team Championships, holding them until losing the belts to Muda and Chono. By 91, Hashimoto and his fellow Musketeers would cement their status as the aces during the G1 Climax, as they were the top three competitors. For his accomplishments, Shinya Hashimoto has been inducted into the New Japan Greatest Wrestlers, the NWA, and Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fames. He would hold the title over the next few months, when a legend would challenge. I'm pro Shinya. Love the spin kicks. Next week... WWF Raw is War. Is this the. No, it wouldn't be the Monday after WrestleMania. Nope. April 7th, 1997, so it's a couple weeks afterwards. And. Where's it gonna be? Muncie, Indiana. Muncie. Hmm. Mm, Have you ever seen Hudsucker Proxy? Yes. Been a long time. Mm. I mean, that's what I think when I hear Muncie. (laughs) Great movie. Music from this week's show is Sierra Nevada and DDP. Whoa. One of our main events. So we play Cell Fi Five, the intro cut by Jimmy Hart, Paige Falkenberg, and JJ McGuire. Cell Fi Five. New music. Wow. <laughs> if you like this episode or any of our other ones, please go out there, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Or wherever you find your podcast at. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns. We're on to Indiana. What do people in Indiana eat? I know they do like a pork tenderloin sandwich or something like that. I don't know. You should uh, send me an email or slide into our DMs or give us a shout out on the X or something like that and tell me what the hell to make for Indiana. Yeah. The only thing I can think of off the top of my head right now because I've been watching a lot of Parks and Rec is recreating a paunch burger. But... 
don't know. Yeah. I, what would I put I, on that? Indiana's not even like a place to me, and I live in Oklahoma, so. It's a place. I know it's a place. I've been there. How is it? I've seen it. Fine. It was fine. Oh. We can do any of those things through email at wrestlinghistoryx at gmail.com or find us on X at wrestlinghistox. That's wrestling H I S T O. X. We'll talk to you next week. Later. Bang!